Uh, good morning, my friends. Good morning and Shabbat Shalom. Good morning. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, Sherry. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Very good. Shalom, Stephen. Shalom, Shalom. Good morning. Glad you're here. Good morning. Shabbat Shalom, Dr. P. Good morning. Hi, Joy. Shabbat Shalom. Hey, Rod. Hi, Eileen. Hey. Hey, there's Brian and Chris. Good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Let's see here. Let's see. Morning, morning, Shabbat Shalom, guys. Shabbat Shalom. Glad you guys are here. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, Dan. See you, brother. All right, let's see. And Suomi Tora International. Hi, Gabriella. Hi, Dr. P. Good morning to you, or good afternoon, or good evening, it might even be now. It's good evening. It's 8 p.m. And Shani signing. Yeah, we live in the same climate, you know. Last night we were coming home from the fellowship at eleven thirty-five, and it was still broad daylight. Of course, you know. Amen for that, brother. Yeah, <laughs> the sun was up this morning at four thirty. So you know, uh, here it comes, right? Yeah. yeah. We start a little bit earlier. We we are like uh, sun is rising uh, a little bit over three. Wow. A little bit over three, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's uh, when you live in this climate, you know, we get this time of year. There is no night anymore. You know, we no. get we get a little bit of dusk, but there's no night. No night. Yeah, it's fun. Of course, the winter is also the true true too, right? There is no day. <laughs> yeah, we have really short sabbats, like three hours long. <laughs> right, it's like the sun has gone down. Well, it's only two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> no work, no working after sundown. So hush, everybody go home. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, today is an interesting day. Today we're going to talk about. We're going to spend a little time on Shabbat, and I think it's going to be fun. Shabbat is a very interesting day, and. Uh, Jonathan uh, uh, Netzloff and I have been having discussions about uh, the Torah portion, and we've got we kind of have a modified modified Torah portion today, dealing with Shavuot, and I'm going to spend time on that today and give a little background because there's much in uh, Shavuot that's not talked about in the Torah portion, and there are people that have you know uh, uh, Chris uh, Reed and I have been having a very interesting discussion. Uh, I don't know if you guys know Chris Reed, but Chris is, uh, he is a code searcher. And uh, uh, him and uh, Jonathan Wright are kind of in an ongoing argument. <laughs> you know, I don't know what it is. But, you know, I have to tell you, I mean, one thing about Shavuot and that I want to say here this morning is that, you know, when we count the Omer, you know, it, it has occurred to me that a lot of counting the Omer coming into Shavuot is uh, seeing the ripening of the tares in our own life. And, uh, you know, we like to pretend that we're all wheat, but really we, we're not. And, you know, so as a result, we see uh, a lot of sinful behavior ripening uh, in, you know, within us that should not be here. And it is the kind of behavior that really has to be kind of put at bay. 
And as we come into Shavuot, we have to recognize that one of the things that I've discovered about Shavuot is that Shavuot is the beginning of creation. Creation began on Shavuot. And Shavuot was first practiced by Noah. Noah is the first one to have recognized Shavuot. And this is detailed in the book of Yovelim and Jubilees. And he gave thanks. And the covenant that was expressed in the heavens with the rainbow was given on Shavuot. That's what it was given. Now, we had a very good discussion about this. John Barr and I had a really good discussion about this uh, during one of our classes. We were talking about the idea that uh, that prior to the flood, that uh, you know, we were speculating on some of the ideas, but there appears to be an interesting record because the woolly mammoth that they have found in Canada and Alaska and in Russia, they died standing up, and they were like instantly frozen instantly frozen to the extent that when one of the woolly mammoth was thawed, they actually cooked the meat for the czar in Russia. And he had it for dinner. And the the woolly mammoth, but the mammoths that they found had broken backs and broken legs standing up. So they had been impacted by something. And we were speculating, we were thinking that that was evidence of a collapsing ice ring around the earth, that when the when the windows of heaven opened, that a lot of that meant a collapsing ice ring, and the collapsing ice ring came down and did a couple of things. One thing that it did was it changed the whole earth. The earth went from being a particular kind of climate to moving to a tilt for the seasons being introduced oceans being introduced, ice caps being introduced, and a number of other things that changed the calendar, gone from going from a 360-day calendar to a 365-day or 364, something like this. But it does give you an indication that the, the Earth has been in motion for a long time and that the motion is sudden. It's not the millions and millions of years old story that we get from science, but rather thousands of years and things have changed dramatically. And uh, at any rate, I mean, the, the point being is that the rainbow is given. The rainbow is a very interesting thing because we know now that the rainbow, which is always round, by the way, the rainbow is given to us in a prism. And the prism is created by the refraction of sunlight at exactly 49 degrees, that is to say seven times seven. And remember that when Yah in Genesis, when Yah gave that covenant, he gave the covenant, he swore seven oaths to Noah that he would never flood the earth again. And that swearing of seven oaths is the word Sheba, Sheba. And it's also the same word that's used for the, for the word seven. And it's also the same word that is the basis of the seventh day, Sheva, the seventh day being in the plural, Shabbat, Shabbat, right? In the singular, Shabbat, in the plural, Shabbat. And so we see that the uh, this idea of a sevenfold covenant being given expressed in the seven colors of the rainbow. And this rainbow is created by light, 
refracting through water at seven times seven degrees gives you an indication of what's talking about with the sevenfold doctrine of Yah and this idea that the covenant would be given on this particular day. So Moshe would say, well, then what we do to determine Shavuot is to count seven times seven, seven weeks of days from the first Shabbat, we will count seven weeks of days. Now, this counting has become, of course, an interesting issue because do we have somebody telling you this is exactly how you calculate the first Shabbat? No. And so as a consequence, we have a big argument. And I shouldn't say a big argument, but let's call it a discussion that in the Jewish world, they take the Shabbat as being the first day of matzah. So the first day of matzah being the high Sabbath, they declare that to be the Sabbath from which you should count Shavuot. So they get a different count than we do, because we take the position that, no, the count begins with the Sabbath day, the regular Sabbath day, that is found within matzah. So it makes no difference what day of the week Sabbath starts, or excuse me, matzah starts, there's going to be a regular Sabbath day in that seven days. It starts on Monday, there, there, a Saturday will come up. And when I say Saturday being the Sabbath, we were talking about this last night, one of the guys in our fellowship, Argentina. And so he's the native Spanish speaker. So I just asked him, I said, you know, how do you say Saturday in Spanish? You know, and the answer is sabato. Well, how do you say it in Italian? Oh, it's sabato. Well, how do you say it in Russian? It's subato. So in 65 nations, the name for the day Saturday is Sabbath. There is no nation on earth that calls Sunday Sabbath. No nation on earth calls Sunday Sabbath. In Russia, they call Sunday Vaskreshenya, which is the day of the resurrection. But they don't call it Sabbath. They, Subotu is Saturday. So we see that the count begins on Sunday, one, two, three. And in, in the Hebrew, it's in order Rishon, Sheni, Shelishi, Rabbi, Hamashi. It's first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh. And Moshe, when he gave the Shabbat, he said he specified this is the seventh day. And when you look at Genesis, you see the reason for the Shabbat is given because Yah created for six days and rested on the seventh. As a consequence, we have a pretty good idea that it's a seven-day sequence. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. And this is practiced in heaven by the angels of the presence and the angels of the sanctification, as well as on earth. And it's not like, gee, this is something that we have to organize in our life. This is the very character of he who created all existence. The sevenfold doctrine of his whole creation. This is his nature. This is his character. This is what he does. 
This is the organization of all existence from the most macro aspects of the world to its most micro aspects. That's why we think that mankind's epic, the Adamic epic, will be 7,000 years. 6,000 years of the dominion of man over the earth, 1,000 years of the dominion of Mashiach reigning over us, and then the renewal of the heavens and the earth. And this may have happened before in a 7,000-year epic. Why do we think there's three epics? Because it is written in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> he was, he is, and he is to come. But the epic that will follow this epic of mankind on earth will be an everlasting epic. It will not be a 7,000-year epic. It will be an everlasting epic. But in this world, we see a sevenfold doctrine of his whole creation. And that sevenfold doctrine is expressed in our regularly maintaining the Shabbat in a seven-day sequence. And as a consequence, there is a Sabbath that appears inside of matzah that is the Sabbath with which you commence your counting of the Omer. It's not the first Sabbath of the year because there will be Sabbaths before that in the month of, in the first month of Aviv. But it is the first Sabbath because it is the one that you start counting the seven Shabbat that lead to Shavuot. So you can see that Moshe wanted to reflect the sevenfold promise of Yah, the sevenfold oath of Yah, given in the colors of the, of the rainbow when he committed to Noah not only to not flood the earth, but he also committed that seed time and harvest time, cold and warm, day and night would continue forever. This is the commitment that's given to us in the Book of Jubilees on Shavuot. So as a consequence, we can see that Shavuot, the beginning of creation, Shavuot, the covenant given with Noah, that was the covenant to never flood the earth again. So this is a physical covenant given to Noah. Now, the next covenant is given is the handwritten covenant of Yahweh given to his people. And this was the covenant that Moshe descended the mountain at Sinai with the Ten Commandments, a covenant written by Yah himself. And interestingly enough, it is written that this was his covenant, the ten Devarim, do them and live in them. That's interesting. It's an interesting covenant that Yah would give us in that respect, because we are called to live in his covenant, to live in his world. And so, and of course, then we would see the covenant expressed once again, a fourth time, with the giving of the Ruach HaKodesh on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which also occurred on Shavuot. So, we see Shavuot in a fourfold manner right now. That Shavuot is the creation, the covenant to never flood the earth again, covenant of the ten Devarim, and the covenant 
the Ruach HaKodesh. And so these things become kind of an important aspect of our life. And in our counting of the Omer, we count out the, the seven times uh, by which Cain was protected, right? A sevenfold protection of Cain. We call out the seven times, the seven times 70 that we are to be forgiven because of these 49 days leading up to Shabbat gives us a chance to look at the, our own crops and our own field. Look at those crops and see what has grown and see what you can do to weed the tares from the wheat. The wheat might bow its head before Yahweh, before the harvest comes in. And so these are the things that we talk about coming into Shavuot. Now, Shavuot allows us, provides for, and actually requires two loaves of leavened bread as part of the celebration to bring in two loaves of leavened bread. And this is a very interesting indication. You know, our practice used to be, it isn't anymore, but it used to be that we would eat unleavened bread until Shavuot, uh, which means, of course, a lot of tacos. But other than that, the uh, and, and the occasional burrito, right? But but you know, the uh, thing is, is that well, you know we don't necessarily do that anymore. We have unleavened bread throughout matzah, but really, the ushering in of the leavened bread uh, coming into Shavuot is the idea that the wheat, the early wheat, is going to be harvested. And when the early wheat is harvested, we are on to eating fresh food. We're on to eating freshness. The stuff in the root cellar should be gone at this point. We should be eating fresh stuff. And that's what Shabbat is really kind of all about. And it's yet the marker of another harvest. And so we see that coming into the wave offering, we see the early barley harvest. Then coming into Shavuot, we see the early wheat harvest. And when we come into Sukkot, we will see the grape harvest and the fig harvest. And then we see this, this feast of Asif, which is the last harvest of the year. And you, you people who garden know what I'm talking about. There comes a point where there's a last harvest. You have to go out there and get everything out of the field before we get into winter. And that last harvest then comes into the Feast of the Seed. Okay. okay, so with that, let's, we've got just about everybody here now this morning. Just about there. So I want to welcome you all to Shabbat, our Shabbat Fellowship. Uh, it is, uh, for me, it's a fantastic blessing to be in fellowship with all of you. Uh, it means a great deal to me. And it, but it's not about me. It has nothing to do with my, you know, personal taste or emotion. It has to do with the fact that we have uh, people that have come out of Rome. And as you come out of Rome, you find yourself quite often exposed uh, and alone. And in many cases, persecuted, cast out, rejected, excommunicated whatever the situation may be. And, and it's important to find fellowship of like minds. And we have fellowship, my friends. We have fellowship all over the world. 
there are many people who have uh, joined the way on Telegram who are from New Zealand and Australia now, many people from South Africa, many people from the United Kingdom. And of course, you know, what we, and people throughout Europe, we have, in fact, we're, um, we're planning on making a trip thanks to, uh, uh, thanks to the benevolence of my friend Chet Nedderly, who has been absolutely wonderful to the Zephyr Group. We are going to be going back, Stephanie and I are going, are going back into the UK and we're going in for uh, Tabernacles. And we're also going to do a series of research trips while we're there. And these are going to be different trips than we did last time. Uh, but we're going to be doing, uh, to give you an example, we're going to be going to, we're going to spend uh, some time in London. And uh, we're going to be, there's several museums in London we have to visit that have uh, specific documents. We're going to a. We're going. To, we're going to try to get into a library at Windsor, Windsor Castle. It takes two months of application to get in the door of that library. So we're putting together our application now, so that we might be able to get into the library at Windsor. We're going to be making the trip into the library and, or excuse me, the museum in Birmingham that allegedly holds the Rod of Moshe. And we want to look at the rod of Moshe because it has Egyptian uh, paleoglyphs on the rod. The tomb of Ahotef, which Alan Wilson claims is the tomb of Moshe, is in the British National Museum. We also want to be able to get a visual on that. And uh, so this is the research we'll be doing in, in uh, London and in Birmingham. And then we're going to be traveling into Ireland again. And this time we're going to be spending time at uh, Tara Hill. Now, there is, for those who follow Radio Free Alaska, I have begun reading what's called the Book of Tethy. And the Book of Tethy is uh, kind of, it's, you know, it's a historical poem concerning the travel of Atiyah Tethy and uh, Simon Baruch, or Shimon Baruch, and, of course, uh, Jeremiah, or Jeremiah, who traveled from Egypt to Ireland. And this book kind of documents that whole legend. We had the privilege last year of seeing the tomb of Jeremiah. And the tomb of Jeremiah is really the most convincing artifact that I have seen to date because of the hieroglyph. There's actually three hieroglyphs that are scrolled on the cave wall. And those hieroglyphs were really, uh, even five years ago, they, were, they had no meaning. Uh, but thanks to the work of Graham Hancock, they, the, the archaeologists are discovering that much of the ancient archaeology dealt with cosmology. That is to say, where the stars were located in the heavens at the time that something was done. And these hieroglyphs point to a particular date at this tomb of Jeremiah, which is 581 B.C., which is very interesting because the temple was destroyed five years earlier in 586 BC, and then here we have this marking, and the marking, by the way, is consistent with the idea of five people traveling by ship uh, to Ireland. And, okay, so the way this legend goes is that Jeremiah traveled to Ireland with Tia Tefi and what the Irish called a guy named Simon Baruch, Baruch which is Irish for Baruch, and Baruch, of course, was the scribe of Jeremiah. 
And so Baruch and Jeremiah and Tiatefi and two others traveled into Ireland. And the story goes that Tiatefi married the Irish king. And they, Jeremiah talks specifically about tearing down Jerusalem and replanting it elsewhere. And it was replanted at Tara Hill in Ireland. And so there's all kinds of artifacts, all kinds of history, uh, various paleoglyphs and so on and so forth that are associated with Tara Hill. And so I have met somebody, uh, you know, via our interface with Ireland who uh, lives in a lighthouse between two counties in uh, Western Ireland, who is who has a tremendous amount of information on Tara Hill, uh, Jeremiah, and Simon Brood. So we're going to be spending a few days in Ireland again, trying to get some inside information as to this, because of course this is going to reflect greatly on our discussion of Shabbat um, today and our discussion of the Sabbath. Because what we're going to see is, and this is something that we've that has gradually emerged out of our Torah studies uh, online through Sefer Academy, that there are really kind of two different understandings uh, in style, if you will, concerning the Torah. And, you know, there are those who say, well, we're going to live by Moshe's Torah and Moshe's Torah alone. This, I think, is an inaccurate scriptural understanding. The Torah, when somebody says, what's your doctrinal statement? My doctrinal statement is not the Nicene Creed. My doctrinal statement is the Sefer. I don't take from or add to that the entirety of the text is the doctrinal statement. And to try to say that we're going to just study the 613 mitzvot of Moshe is to ignore the teaching of David, of the minor prophets, of Isaiah, of Ezekiel, of Jeremiah, of the writings of Ezra, of the Gospels, and their teaching, all of which were required. You know that the handling of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, the instruction that the Sabbath was created for man and not man for the Sabbath. These kinds of teachings are critically important to anyone who studies scripture, because Moshe left a lot of material off the table. I'll give you an example. By the testimony of two or three witnesses, the matter is established. But what if the witnesses are lying? Which was the case with Jezebel and Ahab or Ahab, when Ahab wanted the guy's vineyard, he wanted Navot's vineyard. And Jezebel said, well, just have two of these sons of Belial stand up and say, oh, we heard him blaspheme Yah and the king, and then take him out and stone him. And then once you take him out and stone him, then you can have his vineyard. Well, thank you. And so this is what they did. Now, what do we get later is we get the teaching from Daniel in the book of Susanna, where two guys accuse her of adultery because they wanted to sleep with her and she wouldn't do it. So they accuse her of adultery if they're going to see her stone. And Daniel says, allow me to cross-examine the witnesses separately to determine who's telling the truth. 
And so we see Moshe was silent as to the issue of cross-examination, but Daniel was not. And he teaches us this idea of cross-examination. Same thing with Bell and the Dragon. He teaches investigation. Go look at the facts to see who's telling the truth. These are alliteration, if you will, to Moshe's Torah. The instruction of Mashiach, it is lawful to do well on the Shabbat. He makes it very clear that these things are part and parcel of a true understanding of the Torah. Now, there's another true understanding as well, which is that, you know, uh, Maimonides, who is the one that identified 613 mitzvot in Moshe, he doesn't begin his count until Exodus chapter 5. So all of the Torah that is contained in Genesis and the Torah that is contained in the book of Jubilees, he ignores, he doesn't count, he doesn't look to. And there is a Torah there. There is most assuredly a Torah. And Mashiach makes reference to that Torah to give an example in the Gospels. The scribes and the Pharisees approach him and they say, tell us, Rabbi, uh, Moshe gave us a certificate of divorce. And he says to them, I tell you the truth. Moshe gave you a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. He suffered to give you certificates of divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. But I tell you the truth, in the beginning, it was not so. Now, this is a very, very powerful teaching of Yahusha because Yahusha is telling you, number one, there was a Torah that preceded Moshe. Number two, Moshe contradicted that preceding Torah, which is consistent with what you find in Ezekiel, who said Moshe gave them some bad law. And it's consistent with Jeremiah 7.21 that says, if you want to go out and sacrifice a bull, go sacrifice the bull and eat the flesh. But I never instructed you to do that when I brought you out of Mitzrayim. Instead, I said, obey my voice, and I will be your Elohim, and you will be my people. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, there's not one word in the Ten Commandments about sacrificing an animal. Not one word. So we can see here that when we start talking the covenant language of Yah, the covenant language of Yah is self-expressed. And David tells us what? The heavens declare the glory of Yah. The heavens declare the glory of Yah. And so it is possible to know a great deal of the Torah by looking at what Yah has done in creation. So when we look at what Yah has done in creation, we see that the text tells us he created for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Now, that gives you some clear idea of what a law of nature is. Let me give you an example. We all know, at least we should know, that the average human being is awake 16 hours of a 24-hour period and sleeps for eight. So one-third of your life is committed to sleeping. And people who think you can get around without sleeping are, of course, incorrect. Russians proved many, many decades ago that if you deprive a man of sleep, 
It's the worst torture you can ever use, and you will gain anything you want from that person. Any confession, they'll spill their guts. When you go five days with no sleep, you will say anything and everything. And it's called sleep deprivation torture. That's what it is. It's the most effective torture. There's no reason to waterboard anybody. That's just ridiculous. And so because of that, you see that we see that when, we're, when you talk about this idea of, of uh, sleep, sleep is a natural phenomenon and it is a natural law. Thou shalt sleep eight hours a day. You could put it that way if you want. You could have that as the law. But thou shalt sleep eight hours a day is a natural law. It's a natural part of existence. That's what you're called to do. It's the same thing with the Shabbat. You're called to work six days and rest on the seventh. It is the natural functionality of a human being. Now, in addition, scripture also tells us there is a natural functionality to the land, that the land will have its Shabbat every seventh year. And if you don't want to keep that Shabbat for the land every seventh year, the land will take it from you. And when the land decides to take it from you, it will be at a random date, and the land will rest fallow until it has recaptured its Shabbats. That's what happened to the house of Israel, the house of Judea, when they had ignored the sabbatical year for 490 years. They were cast out of the land for 70 years that the land might have its rest. And it, each year represented a seven-year period of time when the house of Judah refused to acknowledge the Shabbat of the land. So we see that there is a natural Torah. Now, there's more aspects to the natural Torah. The, the mitzvot that Mashiach cites is, haven't you read, Yah created them male and female. Well, now that's kind of a big deal right now, isn't it? That's a big issue right now. It didn't used to be a big issue. That was just a given. People look at that. Yeah, we got that. We got that much. Yah created them male and female. But now it's a big deal. Well, Yah didn't create them male and female. We decided to assign a gender idea to this child that we said was male or female. Well, you know, it's like somebody telling you they're non-binary. Well, if you're non-binary, what are your choices? Binary or non-binary? That's a binary conclusion, isn't it? It's either or. You're either binary or non-binary. That's, that's a binary conclusion. It's like somebody who says to you, there are no absolutes. My response is, do you mean that absolutely? Or is there an exception? Right? Same thing with this idea of non-binary. It's non-rational is the word you're looking for. And so when we talk about male and female, the scripture says, Yah created them, male and female, he created them in his own image. That a man should leave his mother and father and cleave unto his woman, that the two should be one flesh. This is a Torah mitzvot. This is a Torah command, and it comes from the Paradise Torah. This is not the only Paradise Torah mitzvot. For instance, go forth and multiply and replenish the earth. 
you're called to go have children and have the children that Yah wants you to have. That's what you're called to do. In addition to that, look at Genesis 1.14. Genesis 1.14 says, the greater light, the lesser light, and the stars also shall be used for signs, seasons, days, and years. This is a Torah command. You're not commanded to use Gregorian calendar or to use a digital clock. You're not commanded to do any of that. You're commanded instead to use the sun, the moon, and the stars also for signs, seasons, days, and years. Right? Again, a paradise Torah mitzvot. And so these are the kinds of things that were given to mankind early on that we would call the laws of nature. The laws of nature. Now, the proper inquiry into the laws of nature is not what we have in the scientific world today. The scientific world today is premised upon the initial, uh, the initial understanding that assuming there is no creator, we can conclude there is no creator. Now, let's see what we can determine about the universe assuming no creator. The proper inquiry is, what did Yah do in his creation? This is the proper inquiry. This was the inquiry for thousands of years. What did Yah do in his creation? Now, do we have the answers? No. We have some kind of mental constructs that allow us to say, oh, we can figure out what happened. For instance, we use deductive reasoning or if we use inductive reasoning to uh, coalesce our sensations and our perceptions of what is assuming that we believe that the human body has functionality to be able to correctly identify that which exists. Now, we've looked at this in the critical thinking class, and I think I can establish, I can establish it right here, right now, that we do have the ability to understand that which exists via our perceptual reality. Have any of you ever sung in a choir? If you sing in a choir, you're required to sing in tune. That's what you're required to do. If you can't sing in tune, they don't keep you in the choir. So you're required to sing in tune. And when you sing in tune, you're singing something and you're matching it to what you're hearing. This tells you that your perceptual capability is in real time accurately capturing that which exists. Now, you can't do that with your vision. You can't do that with your taste. You can't do that with your smell. And you can't do it with your touch. Because when you look at the color red, you assume everybody else is seeing, seeing what you're seeing. But you don't know that. You assume it, but you don't know that. Talk to a colorblind person. See if they see the same color green that you see or the same color brown that you see. But when we sing, we hear a pitch and we adjust that pitch. We are adjusting our perception to a real-time analysis. This is why scripture says that the word must be preached, that by hearing the word you understand. So we have proven that, in fact, 
your perception of reality is directly attached to that which exists. So as a consequence, you can know what exists. You can understand what exists. So by reasoning, by using logical deduction and logical induction, you can determine the truth of the proposition. As a consequence, we come to understand natural law. The laws of nature and of nature's Elohim. This was the construct that was given to us in the Declaration of Independence. And the use of that term was a term that was bandered around by John Locke in his treatise on liberty in 1689. But that treatise also referred to a long-standing paradigm inside the, the, the common law world, which is that there is a law of nature that is readily understood by the priesthood. By the priesthood. And so this differs from Moshe's law. Moshe's law is a construct. Thou shalt not. If you have leprosy, you must be outside the camp. You shall not marry your sister-in-law. You know, you have, you have these constructs of civil law, criminal law, probate law, uh, land law, real estate law, <clears throat> damages, criminal sanctions, etc., all given in Moshe's law. The laws of nature are outside the scope of those authorities, and they exist in the hands of Yah because he's given them to us clearly. The, the heavens declare the glory of Yah. And with an understanding of that, we can see what's happening. And this is why Shavuot, in its sevenfold promise, is a feast that is to be practiced by the believers, by the family, because it is a sevenfold promise. It is the sevenfold promise of Yah that we would have harvest and seed time, that we would have warmth and we would have cold, that we would have day. We would have night, and that these would and the seasons would continue year after year after year after year. That Yah would not stop them, and so we celebrate this the laws of nature and of nature's Elohim by being a part of that today. Okay, all right. So with that, I'm going to there's some more people here. Look at I'm going to look at the chat here. Let's open up the chat. Let me see what's going on there. All right. Will there be a high Shabbat meeting tomorrow? No, Sherry, there won't be. <laughs> Sorry about that, sister. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a great idea to do that. I mean, you know, that would probably be a good idea to do a high Shabbat meeting tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Let me pray about that. We'll see about how, you know, what happens by the end of the meeting today. Uh, because I know I've got, um, uh, you know, tomorrow is a well-orchestrated Shabbat for me. It's going to be something very good. All right. Okay, let's see here. All right. So let us begin with prayer, shall we? Barukata Yahweh Elohai Yasharel Avinu Olam Laolam. Blessed be you, Yahweh, the Elohim of Yasharel, our Father forever and ever. Father, we praise you that you have gathered us together for Shabbat. And I praise you, Father, that you have called out everyone who is here present for this Shabbat meeting, that for them, 
you are a priority. But those who have walked away from other commitments, those who have walked away from other Elohim, false idols, and so on and so forth, to come to be in your presence for Shabbat, Father. Thank you for calling us as a family into your community. Thank you for being our Elohim and calling us your children. Before we look upon you and call ourselves under your name, Yahweh, your people, Yasharel, may we be a blessing unto you today and a blessing in our walk coming into this Chag Sameach, the beauty of Shavod. Thank you, Father, for giving us this day and this rhythm of life. Such a wonderful thing to have such a beautiful rhythm. May we find it, may we seek it, and may we be blessed in it. Guard our words today and our thoughts and our ideas that we would be gentle to one another, lifting each other up, carrying each other's burdens, and saying to one another, you are my brother, you are my sister, we are one family. Let us be in worship of Yah together. In the name of Yahusha. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start with the Parsha Devarim, Deuteronomy 14.22 through 16.17, and Numbers 28, a few verses from the book of Numbers. So in Devarim, you shall truly tithe at all the increase of your seed that the field brings forth year by year, all the increase of your seed. And you shall eat before Yahweh Eloheka in the place which he shall choose to place his name there. The tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and the firstlings of your herds and of your flocks, that you may learn to fear Yahweh Eloheka always. And if the way be too long for you so that you are not able to carry it, or if the place be too far from you, which Yahweh Eloheka shall choose to set his name there, when Yahweh Eloheka has blessed you, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and shall go unto the place which Yahweh Eloheka shall choose. And you shall bestow that money for whatsoever your soul lusts after, for oxen, or for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, or whatsoever your soul desires. You shall eat therefore before Yahweh Eloheka, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. And the levi that is within your gates, you shall not forsake him, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. What an interesting uh, paragraph, huh? What an interesting paragraph. That when you are far away from the place where Yahweh has placed his name. Now, do we know now where Yahweh has placed his name? Right now, you know, we were told... And the scriptures have told of Yahweh placing his name initially in Shiloh, in Shiloh. And Shiloh then, of course, was the place where the tent of meeting was kept, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And that tent of meeting was then lifted and placed in a building in Yerushalayim, a captured city. This was not David's initial fortress. David was in Hebron. But he moved when he saw the Jebusite castle was impregnable. And he took the castle by coming up through the springs underneath and, and stealing the castle from inside. And there he built his city. And he built his city 
And then they elected to put in a tabernacle there to build the house for Yah. But they didn't build a house to hire or to house Yah. They built the house, his name, that Yah would place his name there. And that temple was destroyed in 581 BC. And Yahud was never reestablished. But the temple and the placement of his name was reestablished for a short period of time, from about 417 BC until 30, excuse me, 70 AD. So we do not have a place now where Yah has placed his name, at least not where we know of. Although I do believe that Yah is establishing a wilderness right now where he will place his name. But his name is going to be placed there for those who seek the wilderness after him. Okay. And you shall not forsake the Levite that is within your gates. Now, you see, this is something, again, very interesting about the tithe. Because the tithe, we're taught that the tithe is given to provide for the Levite. And in many cases, it is. There's a lot of provision that is given to the Levite. Because the Levite has no inheritance. However, the tithe is, you can kind of see it here, it's set forth for you that you are to put away 10% of your income for six years, that in the seventh year, you would have 60% of your income to live on in the sabbatical year. This is what is meant in Malachi when he says, do not forsake my storehouse. Because this was a storehouse where you were expected to store what you were going to be able to need in the seventh year to practice the sabbatical year. But there were lots of people who wanted to steal what you had in storage. And so the story gets changed that it might end, might end up in their hands. Okay. At the end of three years, you shall bring forth all the tithe of your increase in the same year. And shall lay it up within your gates. And the levy, because he has no part or inheritance with you, and the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, which are within your gates, shall come and shall eat and be satisfied. So you can see that at the end of the third year, and at the end of, so that means the third year and the sixth year, your tithe is supposed to go to the levy, the priest, the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, the stranger. And so, again, this is an important teaching, right? That Yahweh Eloheka may bless you in all the work which your hand does. And at the end of every seven years, you shall make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lands ought unto his neighbor, release it. Oh, tell it to the credit card companies, right? And tell it to the banks that even abolished the bankruptcy code that would allow you to go bankrupt every seven years. They did that in 2004. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother because it's called Yahweh's release. Well, may those who do not release the debtors in seven years be forever cursed under scripture for not doing so, for being in violation of this mitzvah. Of a foreigner, you may exact it again, but that which is yours with your brother, your hand shall release. Oh, I get it. So if it's somebody who doesn't agree with your faith, then, then you can hammer them with a 39% interest rate for the rest of their life. 
Save when there shall be no poor among you, for Yahweh shall greatly bless you in the land which Yahweh Eloheka gives you for an inheritance to possess it. Only if you carefully hearken unto the voice of Yahweh Eloheka, to guard to do all these commandments which I command you this day, for Yahweh Eloheka blesses you as he promised you. And you shall lend unto many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. You know, it's very interesting when we were looking at the Magna Carta, King John's Magna Carta, there's two provisions in there that are specific to if you owe money to the Jews. That's literally the language that's used. If you owe money to the Jews, then you shall not have to pay them any usury at all. And it's in the Magna Carta. Anyway, that's another story. If there be among you a poor man, of one of your brethren with any of your gates of your land, which Yahweh Elohika gives you, you shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide unto him, and shall surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wants. Beware that there be not a thought in your wicked heart, saying, the seventh year, the year of Elise is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him not, and he cries unto El Yahweh against you, and it be a sin unto you. In other words, there was a fixed sabbatical year, okay? A fixed sabbatical year and a fixed jubilee year. And if somebody wanted to borrow money in the sixth year on the 364th day, knowing that you would be required to release the debt the following day, the Torah says you shall lend. Now, Galel the elder in the Talmud to get around this particular edict, created the fiscal year or the fiscal Sabbath. Well, it's seven years from the date we lend it to you, not a fixed Sabbath uh, in accordance with the true calendar. Seven days from the day we lend it to you. Beware that they're, okay, you shall surely give him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give unto him because that for this thing, Yahweh Eloheka, shall bless you in all your works and in all that you put your hand unto. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide unto your brother, to your poor, and to your needy in your land. And if your brother, an Ivrit man or Ivrit woman, be sold unto you, and serves you for six years, this is bond servanthood, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him out free from you, you shall not let him go away empty. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of your floor and out of your wine press. Of that wherewith Yahweh Eloheka has blessed you, you shall give unto him. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in the land of Mitzrayim. And Yahweh Eloheka redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And it shall be if he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you in your house because he is well with you. Then you shall take an awl, and you shall thrust it through his ear unto the door, and he shall be your servant forever. And also your maidservant you shall do likewise, and it shall not seem hard unto you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant to you in serving you six years. And Yahweh Eloheka shall bless you in all that you do. Now, this is a very interesting passage, because you can see that the meaning of a man's pierced ear is that he is a bond servant who has agreed to be a servant 
for a second set of ears. A man to have two pierced ears is a bond servant for life. And so it's the same thing with a woman. When a woman pierces her ears, and this has been the tradition and the practice for most women, and you know, even in America, right? In modern America, most women pierce their ears when they're girls. And they pierce their ears because the idea of piercing your ears is a scriptural statement saying that you will serve as a bond servant to your husband for your whole life. That's what the ear piercing means. That's what its implication is. You're telling your future husband that you will serve your future husband for life. And so these things do have meaning. They have meaning. And so when people get additional piercings, well, they're they're agreeing to serve additional gods or additional masters. You know, it's like, yeah, I serve you, but I also have a couple of other masters over here. That's what this other piercing is here. And that's what this piercing is here. This piercing here is for the God of money. This piercing here is for the fish God. This piercing here is for Isis. This piercing here is for Dagon. This piercing over here is for, you know, who knows what, right? All of these things have implications from a scriptural point of view. So I used to have this argument with my daughter. Well, what if I want to wear a ring? I said, well, if you wanted to wear, you know, if you put a diamond ring on the fourth finger of the left hand, you can think it's a fashion statement all you want. Everyone else in the world is going to construe that as a wedding ring. But you can think it's a fashion statement in your own mind. You can think, well, to me, it doesn't mean that. Well, it may not mean that to you. But to 99.8% of the rest of the world, that's exactly what it means, you know. So, but scripturally, we see that the piercing of the ear does have particular meaning. Now, of course, a lot of people look to certain English texts uh, with Raquel saying that Raquel had a um, had a pierced nose, and so there are many many people in the well, in the community that have a nose piercing. Okay, well, I'm not here to belabor anybody over a nose piercing, you know, but you've got to remember that Raquel had had a few problems in her life, one of which was included the worshiping of teraphim, you know, so something to think about. But nonetheless, I'm not here to give anybody grief over their nose piercing. I do find it interesting, though, when I go to coffee shops, a lot of girls in coffee shops have this nose piercing. It's right here. It hangs from their nose, you know. And I think to myself, okay, well, what is the implication of this nose piercing that hangs from your nose? And the implication is that they are servants. They're servants. They're servant of their employers, right? And that's kind of the oh, that's kind of the implication you get. I remember the first time I saw a guy, um, I went into a coffee shop in Anchorage back in the early 90s. And this guy had 28 piercings on his face including a whole litany of like, I don't know, shower curtain rings across the top of his eyebrow. He had like 14 of these rings across the top of his eyebrow. And, uh, you know, um, my dad was always opposed to that kind of stuff. He was like, you know, you never want to have any jewelry on you at all. Like if you ever get in a fist fight because somebody will grab the jewelry and then hold you, right? Like a wristwatch or something like this, you know? So he was always opposed to that kind of stuff simply because it, it didn't equate to what would happen in a fist fight. Like that was the ultimate criteria in life, right? How you're going to fare in a fist fight. Anyway, 
So let's see. All right. But we do see this teaching about the about the bond servant about the, and the all, right? And the first thing males that come out of your herd and of your flock, you shall sanctify unto Yahweh Elohim. Sanctify them. And you shall do no work with the first ling of your bullock, and you shear the first ling of your sheep. You shall eat it before Yahweh, year by year, in the place which Yahweh shall choose you and your household. And if there be any blemish therein, if it be lame, blind, or have any ill blemish, you shall not sacrifice it unto Yahweh Elohika. You shall eat it within your gates, the clean and the clean, unclean person shall eat it alike as the roebuck and as the deer. You shall not eat the blood thereof, and you shall pour it on the ground as water. So here we see Devarim is like, okay, yeah, eat meat, you know, sacrifice the meat, eat it. it. There's no question that Moshe's Torah is talking about eating flesh. There's no veganism here at all. Right? Chapter 16. Guard the month of Aviv and keep the Pesach under Yahweh Eloheka. For in the month of Aviv, Yahweh Eloheka brought you forth out of Mitzrayim by night. You shall therefore sacrifice the Pesach unto Yahweh Eloheka of the flock and the herd in the place which Yahweh shall choose to place his name there. You see? Hey, why am I not sharing this screen? Let me just share this. I don't know why I'm not sharing this. Let's do this. Okay, there we go. You guys can see that now, right? Okay. All right. Uh, okay. So, you can see that okay? Am I right? Eileen, you can see it okay? We can see it. Okay. You shall eat no chametz with it. Seven days you shall eat matzah therewith, even the bread of affliction, for you came forth out of the land of Mitzrayim, that you may remember the day you came forth out of Mitzrayim all the days of your life. And there shall be no chametz seen with you in all your coast for seven days, neither shall there be anything of the flesh which you sacrifice the first day of the evening, remain until the morning. In other words, if you did sacrifice the lamb, come the morning, you either eat it all or you burn it. You do not sacrifice the Pesach within any of your gates, which Yahweh Eloheka gives you, but at the place which Yahweh Eloheka shall choose to place his name in, there you shall sacrifice the Pesach at evening. Not at three o'clock in the afternoon, like you know, Christian pastors try to teach you. At the going down of the sun, at the season that you came forth out of Mitzrayim. So the last supper of Mashiach was properly kept. The idea of having the Pesach meal on the evening of Matzah, which is the Jewish practice, is incorrect. You shall roast it and eat it in the place where Yahweh Eloheka shall choose. You shall turn in the morning and go into your tents. Six days you shall eat matzah. On the seventh day shall be a solemn assembly to Yahweh, and you shall do no work therein. Now, this solemn assembly is a hag. It is not uh, uh, just a feast day. It's not a moed. It's a hag, high feast. So the first day and the last day, matzah, high feast. Now, seven weeks you shall number. You begin to number the seven weeks from such a time as you begin to put the sickle to the green. And you shall keep the feast of Shavuot unto Yahweh Eloheka with a tribute of a freewill offering of your hand, which you shall give unto Yahweh Eloheka according as Yahweh Eloheka has blessed you. Okay, so you would begin this harvest 
is going to begin the day after the regular Shabbat. That is when you're required to cut the sheaf and to make a wave offering. Okay, so we go into matzah, you have the Pesach, then you go into matzah. You have the high feast day, the first day of matzah, you go into matzah. Now you're in matzah and you come to the Shabbat where you can do no work. I think she really got it in the nose. Over her thigh, that would do it. Well, uh, or maybe that or both. Well, now just hold on here a second before you get carried away with that, Daniel. And I'm going to go ahead and mute you there. There. And if you're going to do that, you'll have to take it up with another foot in that Anyway, the point being is that is that you're, you're required to do a wave offering the day after Shabbat. And the wave offering is to wave the barley. And so when you wave the barley, uh, we've got the bar of the barley's in, you've put the sickle to the grain. And you shall keep the feast of Shavuot under Yahweh Eloheka with a tribute of a free will offering your hand, which you shall give according as Yahweh Eloheka has blessed you. And you shall rejoice before Yahweh Eloheka, you and your son and your daughter and your manservant, your maidservant, and the levy within your gates, and the stranger and the bodiless and the widow that are among you, in the place where Yahweh Eloheka has chosen to place his name there. Well, what if Yah hasn't chosen to place his name anywhere? What do you do, right? You shall remember that you were a bondman in Mitzrayim, and you shall guard and do these statutes. You shall keep the feast of Sukkot seven days, and you have gathered in your threshing floor and your wine. You see, gathered in your threshing floor and your wine, the grape harvest. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, and your manservant, your maidservant, the levy, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow that within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a solemn feast of Yahweh Eloheka in the place where Yahweh shall choose, because Yahweh Eloheka shall bless you in your increase and all the work of your hands. Therefore, you shall surely rejoice. I have to tell you, in the nation of Georgia, uh, they have a huge uh, wine harvest feast at the end of September. And it's very much like Sukkot, but they don't practice the true Sukkot, even though they should. But everybody shows up in Belisi wearing the traditional Georgian, you know, costumes and dancing and singing and having a huge wine feast. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of Yahweh Eloheka. Okay. And in the day of Bekur, Okay, so now let's go to numbers. In the day of Bikur, when you bring a renewed oblation unto Yahweh in your Shabbat, you shall have a holy assembly and you shall do no servile work. So tomorrow is a holy assembly of high Sabbath, a Chag, which there should be no servile work. But you shall offer the ascending smoke offering of a sweet savor unto Yahweh. And for us, it's the bull of our lips, that is to say, our prayer. And their oblation of fine flour mingled with oil, three-tenth deals of one bullock, three-tenth deals under one ram, etc. You shall offer them, beside the continual ascending smoke offering, and it's oblation, they shall be in you without blemish, and their drink offerings. Okay. Now, again, what we see in the modern world is that the, the animal sacrifice has been replaced the ascending smoke offering sacrifices replaced with prayer we are we our sacrifice is the sacrifice of prayer the sacrifice of prayer right 
So the prayer of Habakkuk, Habakkuk, as you know, was the first Alaskan prophet, Habakkuk. He was from Igigik. Oh, Yahweh, I have heard your speech and was afraid. Oh, Yahweh, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. Eloah came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Silan. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. And his brightness was as the light. He had rays of light coming out of his hand. There was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth from his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and robe asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, and the curtains of the lands of Midian did tremble. Was Yahweh displeased against the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you did ride upon your horse and your chariot of Yeshua? Your bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even your word, Sila. You did cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went, and at the shining of your glittering spear. You did march through the land in indignation. You did thresh the heathen in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, even for the salvation with your Mashiach. You wounded the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation under the neck. Selah. You did strike through his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was to devour the poor secretly. You did walk through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at my voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up unto his people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will joy in the Elohai of my Yeshua. Yadonai, Yahweh Adonai is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon high places. To the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Sing this praise. Yeah, amen. What a great praise that is. What a great praise that is. You know, I don't know if you, if you ever watched Doll Sheep. But Doll Sheep walk up some of the most incredible mountains that you can possibly imagine. It's like, that's not possible to go there. And they'll go up the face of an absolute sheer cliff with very little to stand on. But they have the balance and the strength to do it. And when there is nothing, there is no fig tree blooming. There is no olive tree blooming. There is no olives. There are no, there's nothing in the fields. The flocks are cut off. Yet the sheep will have something to eat because they will walk in high places. We would walk accordingly, similarly, walking up incredible cliffs because Yahweh will provide it.
Then from Matt, Acts chapter 2, you see this, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. Imagine that. Imagine that. Ye men of Yasharel, hear these words. Yahusha, the Netzeri, a man approved of Elohim among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which Elohim did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of Elohim, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom Yahweh has raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. For David speaks concerning him, I foresight Yahweh always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Neither will you suffer your holy one to see corruption. For you have made known to me the ways of life. You shall make me full of joy with your countenance. Now, this is a prophecy that David gave. But the question is, did David die and was his body corrupted? Of course it was. But what of the seed of David? What of the seed of David? Different issue. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. And his sepulcher is with us unto this day. So true. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that Elohim had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Mashiach to sit on his throne. Amen. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Mashiach, that his soul was not left in Sheol, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Yahusha, this Elohim raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of Yah exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Ruach HaKodesh, he shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he said himself, Yahweh said unto my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your foes your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Yasharel know assuredly that Elohim has made that same Yahusha, whom you have crucified, both Adonai and Mashiach. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said, and to Kepha and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Kepha said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Yah, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift, the Ruach HaKodesh. For the promise is unto you. The promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as Yahweh Elohenu shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this perverse nation. Then they gladly received his word and were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers.
Well, what an interesting uh, reading today. You know, when we talk about this day of Shabbat, this is the day that the Ruach HaKodesh came upon the apostles and they went out speaking in tongues. And you might recall that they went, they went out speaking and people said, these people are drunk because they're out here babbling. But people from every nation that were there heard and understood in their own language that which was being said. <laughs> so we know a couple of things that the, um, the speaking of tongues, speaking in tongues, is one provision of the Ruach HaKodesh. But the speaking in tongues is one that is subject to interpretation. And it must be subject to interpretation, or it's merely the clanging of a symbol, which does not edify the church. So when we talk about praying in tongues, are you praying in a tongue that someone else recognizes, or are you just engaging in babble? Now, I do think that it is important to know how to pray in tongues, and many times to pray in your own private closet under your prayer in your prayer closet, in tongues. Because you speak in a language that eliminates the filter of your own mind. It eliminates the filter of your own mind. But to require another to pray in tongues before you, before you're willing to accept them as a brother and sister, is ridiculous. And it has absolutely nothing to do with Scripture. The praying in tongues is something that is a gift of the Ruach HaKodesh to you privately. Although I have seen it used in the field. For instance, I had a friend that was in um, Kenya. And he was dealing with some brothers and sisters that spoke only Swahili. And they began to pray. And one of the brothers, who could not speak any English at all, began to pray in English. And not only did he pray in English, but he prayed in English with a Manchester accent. Which was, you know, who, who could imagine this, right? But this is what happened. And uh, so the, when Yah wants to convey a message, he's capable of doing that. And of course, we have to keep in mind that Yah speaks every language on earth. There's no language you're going to speak that he doesn't understand. He understands every language. He understands your prayers before you utter them. You know, so we keep this in mind when we talk about this. But nonetheless, we see now the four covenants given. Shavuot. First, the creation of the world was done on Shavuot, began on Shavuot. Second, Noah's covenant that Yah would never flood the earth again, that he would give us seed time and harvest time, day and night, warm and cold, and the seasons forever. And that this covenant would be expressed in the sevenfold rainbow set in the heavens. And that this was the swearing of seven oaths to mankind concerning this covenant. Moshe would express this covenant and call this the seven sevens. Seven weeks would be counted from the putting the sickle to the, to the grain offering for Shavuot. And on Shavuot, Moshe would appear with the handwritten covenant of Yah. And when he appeared with the handwritten covenant of Yah, this was on Shavuot. So Yah would again covenant with his people 
the 10 Devarim. And this covenant would be renewed again with the giving of the Ruach HaKodesh on Shavuot following the crucifixion of Mashiach. When Mashiach told them, you guys are too cowardly to do a thing. You need to go hunker down and wait. You, all of those disciples had fled from the cross. Remember, it was only the women that arrived at the cross. And Yochanan. Where was everybody else? They had fled. And Mashiach, upon his rising, spending 40 days with them, came back and said, you people are too cowardly. Don't go anywhere. Don't you think you're going to go out and start preaching the, the ascension or the resurrection and the ascension of me because you're too cowardly? I must go away that the Ruach HaKodesh may come upon you. But I want you to hunker down and wait. Go into the upper room of Jerusalem and hang out. Don't do a thing. Wait till the Ruach HaKodesh comes upon you. And when the Ruach HaKodesh does come upon you, then go to Jerusalem and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, preaching all the things that I have commanded you. And so they waited. And then Shavuot, the Ruach HaKodesh came upon them again. And so we see the creation of the world the covenant of the times, the days, and the seasons, the covenant of the ten Devarim, and the covenant of the Ruach HaKodesh, bringing mankind into the fullness of Yahweh, into the fullness of Yahweh. And so this is what Shavuot is, okay? the fullness of Yahweh. Okay, brothers and sisters. So with that, should we have a Sabbath meeting tomorrow at the same time. Okay, we got David saying yes. We got Sherry saying yes. Eileen is saying yes. Joyce says yes. Okay, all right. Then it's going to be the same Sabbath uh, invite. Okay, the same Sabbath invite. We use the same Sabbath invite. We'll do it tomorrow at the same time. Okay, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Shabbat and I'll go into a little bit more detail. All right. Okay. All right. So with that, I think I'm finally done blabbing. So let's uh, let's talk with Catherine Wilmot that we haven't heard from for a while. Catherine, buenos dias, senora. Como te va? You're muted. You're muted there, sister. There you go. Shalom, Stephen. <laughs> Um, uh, no, I'm much better. I'm still in a very vulnerable position because they haven't found a replacement for one of my hearts meant. But yeah, um, I'm not, um, the symptoms the medication was giving me, I was almost like a drunk. <laughs> I'm laughing. I don't know what it's like to be drunk, but I've seen others. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> what I what I wanted to ask you is, can you you were speaking about the times and the seasons, and that word massive what I can't even pronounce it properly. 
Can you explain that word more in depth for me? Um, because I think I can link it. You're talking about Genesis one fourteen. Which word are you talking about again? Um, you, I can't pronounce it properly. Is it the Maseroth? Um, Maseroth? Oh, the Maseroth? You know the times and the seasons? Yeah. Well, that's Moed Code. Think it's here. in the times and seasons. Now, yeah, yeah, my me... question is... Hmm? Go ahead. Uh, one of my questions is, there might be a spiritual aspect, but is the aspect because I think these stone circles being clocks of seasons and times and the stars of the heavens, I believe that's part of the Maseroth because not only have I found a real stone engine, and I found one, a real one in, in the US today. And when I've actually looked at ancient migration routes, it's everywhere where the children of Israel went. They're on the paths. These stone circles are on the paths to everywhere where the children of Israel went. Now, my question is, <clears throat> we used to think that they were learning centers, et cetera, et cetera, but we tied in with that word. The Maserote. I can't say it, sorry. Yeah, the Maserote. Maserote. Like Matza, but Maserote. Yeah, Maserote. Yeah, and it's very interesting. You know, we were talking about this before that when you look at the seven churches in the book of Revelation, right, in Chazon, those seven churches have locations in Turkey. You can go, uh, you can go on Google Earth and you can find all of the sites of the seven churches. Seeing them, yeah. And when if you put stars on all of those seven sites, they ma they match up geographically with the layout of the Pleiades. But the, the only difference was is that the Pleiades until 1920, they believed that the Pleiades only had six stars. But in 1920, the Japanese invented a telescope called Subaru. Mm -hmm. And Subaru found the seventh star. And when they found the seventh star, it mapped out exactly with the seven churches in Revelation. So the seven churches, why did they give those seven churches? And why didn't they give us Antioch or Alexandria or Jerusalem or Cappadocia? Uh, you know, why didn't they give us those? Instead, they give us these other seven churches because those seven churches expressed the ge geographic pattern of the Pleiades. And so we see the Maserot expressed in Revelation 2 and 3. We also see the Maserot talked about specifically in Revelation 12. And Genesis 114 tells us that we are to use the sun, the moon, and the stars also for signs. And, you know, the signs are, you know, that word there is odiot, right? Ot, odiot, odiot, signs, right? And then you have signs and then moedim, or actually it's not moedim, it's moedot, the feminine plural, moedot, which are, you know, appointed festivals. And of course, so we see that the moon, for instance, gives us a series of signs every month in its moon cycle. 
that is telling us the months of the year. So the moon is to be used for signs. Right? Then we have the seasons. And the seasons are, are given to us by the, the um, patterns of the cycle of the sun, the equinoxes and the solstices and so forth, even though they're marked in jubilees by various new moons that are associated mm. with those. And then you have days and years. And of course, the days are you know, <clears throat> sunset to sunset. And the years are when we get to the annual uh, completion of the circuit. And so these things are... Uh, kind of the four pillars of the earth, if you will. And they are central to a, a Torah understanding, right? So the Maserot, when you're talking about like the Stonehenge, Stonehenge is really quite uh, unbelievable in its disposition in yielding a single algorithm. It gives a single algorithm. And uh, that's very important. And many of these sites are now we're coming to understand that the ancient world and the ancient sites in the ancient world were all about cosmology. You know, we in the modern world, we watch the, uh, we watch the, um, the uh, tele telebroadcasted vision, right? We watch television in the ancient world. They watched the heavens. And so, you know, you, you would go outside, you know, you'd work your work day. And then before you fell asleep, you would go outside and you would sit and you would stare at the heavens and contemplate the stars and contemplate their motion. And over the years, these, these motions and the, and the heavens and their changes would be charted and graphed and marked. Gee, look, that one's there. Look, that one's there. Look at that. This has changed. And when you look at the stargazing that went on, this cosmology that went on, uh, the cosmology was very, very sophisticated. This is part of the reason why in the Northern Hemisphere, you would navigate, you would triangulate your navigation using the North Star, whereas in the Southern Hemisphere, you would triangulate your navigation using the Southern Cross, because the Southern Cross in the heavens would point to due south. So you could use the Southern Cross in the Southern, in the southern Hemisphere and the North Star in the Northern Hemisphere for navigation. And this was, they all did it. You know, before GPS, this is how everybody uh, uh, calculated their place on the earth was by doing this. And so, but in addition to that, you were also capable, for instance, where I live, we can go outside, you know, most of the year when it's when there's no clouds in the sky. And we can calculate what time it is in the night by simply looking at the angle of the Big Dipper. Mm -hmm. It's the big so, dipper, you know, travels around like this all night long. Mm. Does this. <clears throat> and so you can so, look and you can see what time it is. Because I was thinking with these Stonehenges and the ancient one I found in the West of America today. Now, I was thinking with these Stonehenges, could they have helped them also time the feast days of Yah? Because it seems to be on every ancient migration route I found with the house yeah, of Yeshua. It's very possible. I mean, there's an expression there that is, um, you know, for instance, like when we talk about the barley being in a beave, right? The barley being in a beave uh, is interesting because really you're talking about the constellation Virgo. 
the constellation Virgo has in her left hand a star called Spica. And Spica is traditionally represented as a sheep of barley in the left hand of Virgo. And so when Spica comes above the event horizon, then we know that we've arrived at the first month of spring. And so mm. Spica will be above the event horizon for six months, and then it goes below the event horizon in autumn. Now, there's a special name for that in scripture. Um, and I don't remember what it is right now, but there's a special name for the constellations that are dispositive. They're, they're, they break over the, um, over the event horizon. So we see them mm. and we don't see them. So, for instance, when we were in South Africa, we saw Orion very clearly. You know, Orion was, um, you know, obvious in the night sky. We never see that in the Northern Hemisphere. And, I mean, I had a chance to see Betelgeuse, which is in Supernova. You know, it was bright red. And But in the Northern sky, we see the Big Dipper. You know, we don't see Orion. And uh, so, uh, at, at any rate, but there is a group of constellations. And, you know, we're not talking about constellations in terms of, oh, gee, what's your sign? You know, and then we're going to, you know, yeah, predicated on these stars. That's, you know, that's pop uh, uh, astrology, which is, you know, irrelevant. Which is not of, yeah. What, it's but, not of, yeah. What's relevant yeah. is, is that, you know, like I say, there's the E.W. Bollinger book called A Witness to the Stars. You can get it. It's a download. You can get a free download of it. And it's a very good read in terms of understanding. There's like 48 constellations about which you should have knowledge. And these 48 mm. constellations are uh, signs in the heavens that tell us a great deal. Now, you have to remember that the, the Magi, we talk about the Magi, people want to say, well, you can't use Magi because that refers to magic. Mm. And so, again, magic mm. is understanding. We use magistratum. There we go, the witness to the stars. Joy's holding it up right there. Witness to the, the witness of the stars by E.W. Bollinger. You, like I say, you can download the, the PDF freely. Um, but when when you look at the um, when you look at the stars, they're, they're, the, the magi gave us what's called the magistratum. Now, for instance, you know, and virtually everybody here in your various judicial districts, you have a magistrate, right? Right. There's a, some magistrate that's either doing marriages or doing uh, uh, funerals or is doing some birth certificates or something like this. But there's a magistrate that sits at some court at some level. And then you have, if you go to the university, you, you talk to the magistrar to get registered at the university. Right. This is all magistrat. <clears throat> And the magistratum was an order of delineation of authority created by the magi. And it's very clear in, in scripture that the magi came and recognized the birth of Mashiach. So we have the two witnesses in the temple, which was Shimon and Hannah. Mm -hmm. Shimon said, I've seen the consolation of Israel when, when Mashiach was brought for the circumcision on the eighth day. And Hannah, who also confirmed that he was Mashiach, but that Miriam would suffer to, to see his death in her lifetime. This was all forecasted in the temple on the eighth day. But remember that the Magi were there first because the Magi had seen the stars in the heavens predicting the birth. This is given to us in the gospel, right? This is not, it's not like this exists in some far-fetched outside of scripture authority. 
This is given to us in the Gospels, that the Magi's, having seen the stars in the heavens, came to worship the baby because they recognized what had happened and they recognized who he was and they knew where he was going to be. Mm. How, how was it that the Magi knew this? Because the Magi came from 1,500-year practice of studying the stars, mm. of looking at the stars in the heavens. And by looking at the stars in the heavens, as we do now, I mean, there were things known, Catherine, that, you know, I just, it kind of boggles my mind, really, because there were things known in, in those days that we do not know yet. I mean, how was it that John the Revelator knew there were seven stars in the Pleiades when we didn't discover it until the 1920s? How did the watchers before the time of Noah create chimeras when we didn't discover how to do that until the 1990s, right? How is it that they could pass their seed through to Molech and create a triple helix DNA back in the time of Hezekiah, and we don't know how to do that? Oh, they're doing it now on babies in Britain. Yeah, that's what I've heard, yeah. But we didn't know those things. I'll put it in our research. You know, you, you see what I mean? We did not know these things. And but they did. They had a, a lot of knowledge that we don't have, even yet that we don't have. It's simple things that they knew that we don't know what they were. And mm -hmm. it's the same thing here. The Magi were able to look at the stars and be able to say, look, this event is going to happen at some specific date in the future. And this event is going to be a once in history alignment of what? A woman with 12 stars in her hair, with the, with the, with the sun at her feet wrapped in, or with mm -hmm. the moon at her feet wrapped in the sun, mm -hmm. giving birth to a child, right? And this was the sign. You see, it was Venus that was in the sign of the Revelation 12 sign at the birth of Mashiach, not Jupiter. It was Venus. And then the September 23rd, 2017 sign, which is the first mm -hmm. time in history, all of human history had happened. So that was Jupiter. That was being birthed mm -hmm. and so these are two different signs in the heavens but the magi were able to recognize this and to know it and scripture the gospels tell us of it yes so if you know you can have somebody running around going pagan 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 all they want but it's right there in the scripture mm -hmm. so you know what do you do with that anyway well thank you catherine now you found this stonehenge where in the United States was it located? Um, I'll put it on the ark. It's in the West. Now, you know where I, the West? There's, I can quickly look it up now. Hold on. Did you there's know, Catherine? There's one that, under the sea um, near Israel. Hold on. Ah, interesting. Did you know that they think that um, there was a sphinx in the heart of the Grand Canyon? Yes, I think I put that photograph up in our research. Thing. How's that for a mind boggler, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. let me, it's um, called West Mar Martin's Rock Circle. And where? Both point, um, hold on. It's in the U.S. Yeah, where in the U.S., do you know? I'm just, just looking up. I'm just... I think it's new. Um, what What are you saying, BK? Where do you think it is? We travel below near Stone Circle. They have one in New Hampshire. 
New Hampshire, yeah. I know in New Hampshire, the, the one in New Hampshire is very interesting because that one, believe it or not, if you take that one and you run a ley line from that oh, one, it runs right from New Hampshire, right through Stonehenge in Britain, right to Mount Hermon in Israel. Mm. Interesting. And, I'm and this sure. bet is probably in line with it too. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 in the west of the states. Of what state? Um, can I can't pronounce it, Stephen. It's B O L I M A S, Balonus Ridge. I, I put the link. I put the link in um, chat for the resources on those in the United States that Catherine has. It's iericsteinhart.com. I think Catherine, that one's in there. Yeah, and do right. you, have, you know where you know where the location is, Eileen? Um, it says uh, Bolinas Ridge Stone Circle in Mount Tamalpas St. Park in California. California. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's right. probably but that's probably up in near Yosemite then. Okay. All right. Well, outstanding. Well, thank you for this information. And again, I want to, you know, uh, I want to lift a couple of people up. Catherine, I want to lift you up. And I also want to lift up uh, Brother Chris uh, in South Africa. And uh, and also I want to lift up uh, Brother Randall in prayer right now that uh, we would lift up them for purposes of health. Okay. So Heavenly Father, thank we give you. thanks. Wait, wait. Oh, wait one, one. I'm sorry. There was one more. Um, Gabriella. Oh, and Gabriella. Okay, yes. yeah. Okay, Let's thank you. Gabriella as well. Okay, so let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, Father, knowing that you have heard our prayers already, Father, but we're going to lift them to you now. We want to lift up our brothers and sisters before you, that you would look upon them and restore them in their health. Give them proper care, Father, in, within the community, and that they would be restored and that their health would recover very quickly. So we lift up our sister, Catherine, that her doctors might find the proper meds for her that will give her a great balance and uh, and you know, good equilibrium that she might be able to continue forward. We want to lift up our brother Chris in uh, South Africa. Father, hear our prayers with Chris and, and um, may he be blessed and may the people who are helping him uh, where he is right now, that they also would be blessed and that they would know your hand and that they would know your name. May he give a testimony to the nurses and doctors there of your great mercy and kindness, Father. May your name be lifted up where he is among them, that they would know in that community that Yah loves them and that he's looking after South Africa and that you would bless Chris with a restoration of health and that his family would be very strong. We pray for Gabriella, that Gabriella would also be restored to perfect health, Father, that you would bless her and give her great medical care and that the doctors would be gifted with incredible insight that they didn't have before, and that she would be completely recovered. And we pray for our brother Randall too, but Father, that you would also lift him up and make sure that his medical care is great and that he comes away restored in health, Father. We pray these things, we lift them to you through the atoning blood of Yahshua that allows us to approach your throne without a veil before us, without a Levite coming in before us, that you've given us access to your throne directly. Thank you, Father, for being open to hearing our prayers. 
name of Yahshua. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Catherine, look for great things, sister. It's coming at you. Yah's blessings coming at you. Thank you. I'll hold on to that word. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys. So I'm going to say thank you guys for joining us today in Shabbat. May the peace of Yahweh be upon you. May his shalom be within you and around you. May he be a strong tower and a fortress around you. May his wings cover you. May the rose bright, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall gently on your fields and give you blessing in all things. May it be. Shabbat shalom, my friends. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Thank you, Dr. Pigeon. Thank you. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom, family. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom. See you tomorrow. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Thank you.